0: Hello listeners. My name is Aja Monet and I'm a blue surrealist poet and organizer. I am your host for this show, The Sound Bath, a podcast brought to you by Lush Cosmetics, where you'll be hearing conversations that cleanse. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast explores what personal, social and environmental care and well-being really mean in today's society. This show is designed to be listened to in the bath. So sit back and enjoy the conversation. At the end, stick around for a beautiful meditative sonic sound bath. And I'm excited, Oludara, to have you here with us. I would love it if you wouldn't mind please introducing yourself for our
1: listeners. Thank you so much for having me here. My name is Oludara. I am a psychotherapist. I work as a psychiatric social worker in Los Angeles. I primarily work with those who are unhoused, experiencing homelessness, have substance issues, and severe and persistent mental illnesses. I'm also the author of Self-Care for Black Women, which is a book filled with 150 tips to help black women revitalize their self-care for their mind, body, and soul. Something we all definitely need.
0: I would love to know what brought you to this work. Is Mm -hmm. there a specific Mm -hmm. story or moment in your life that brought you to this work?
1: I feel like it was a spiritual journey and it was a series of events and also me listening to my intuition and just following the path that I fully believe that I belong on. So before becoming a social worker, I was a journalist. I worked at Cosmo Magazine. I worked at XXL. So I was in the media industry. I have a bachelor's in journalism. So I really thought my life was going to be being a journalist and being a magazine editor or a web editor. And I quickly realized that that industry wasn't necessarily for me began when I was working at Cosmo and my mom was sick at the time. She had rheumatoid arthritis. It's an autoimmune disease and her health just never got better. And while she was in her illness, I was also her caregiver while working full time as an editor. So I was very, very stressed and also dealing with my own health issues. And I began to realize that my mom never really prioritized her health. And while her disease wasn't necessarily her fault, I really began to see that because she neglected things like being anemic and taking her medicine, and she just never really looked after her wellness. And I began to see that pattern in me and pushing myself to the limit and ignoring the things my body was telling me in regards to my health and At that time, I was diagnosed with something called polycystic ovarian syndrome, and that had taken over my life, and I had become anemic, and I had to go on that journey to properly heal myself. And so my mom passed away, and I fell into a depression, but I kept pushing forward because my family, we are Nigerian and Africans, it's like, mental health, like, what is that? You know, like, it's just like, you're fine, just pray, you know? So I ignored the signs, but and I also was burnt out from working at Cosmo. I experienced the typical things that black women experience in the workplace, which is extra workload, your ideas being ignored, standards for you are different than everyone else. And it just got to the limit where I had to quit. And, you know, I then started working at Double XL as the managing editor. And that was its own thing as well, because it's the music industry and the media industry. And so I, while I was in it, I began to just realize, wow, I don't know if I can do this because I cherish a balanced life. I love to do things like go yoga, spend time with family and friends and really tap into my wellness and my spirituality. And it's like, I don't have time for this when I'm basically working 24-7 on on the 24-7 news cycle. So I just one day decided to quit and I realized I was depressed from the job and I quit without a plan. I basically was just like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And thankfully, I have a really strong group of girlfriends who really hold me down. And they were like, yes, this doesn't make sense for you to be in this industry anymore. Like you need to find a different path. And I've always been interested in mental health. And I had friends who were going to school for basically their second careers as well. And a friend said, maybe you should try social work. And so I was like, but I don't, I don't want to be taking babies from families. Like that's that's not my thing. And she's like, no, you can be a therapist. And I was like, oh, okay. So I basically researched and I found the program at University of Southern California. I visited, I fell in love with LA. I was just like, okay, this really does feel like me. And so I applied, I got in, they gave me a scholarship. And then once I got to L.A., it was just like things lined up. My internships were filled with stipends and it was just like I met the right people. And I don't know if you ever had this experience where you like get to a place and you just feel like it's home and you're like, oh, this is where I should have been the whole time. And that's kind of how I felt once I got to L.A. So once I started my um, social work program and I was able to really just have time for myself, I began to, you know, dive into self-care more and figure out what does well for me and how to take care of me and doing the things I feel like my mother never really got the chance to do. So it was like a really spiritual connection and it just made sense. Mm.
0: So I was really interested in having this conversation with you because I think there's this correlation between you know, what we deal with personally and what we're experiencing politically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think something that I've personally struggled with that many women and Black women struggle with is the the quote unquote mother wound and Mm. how much of that is a big part of the way that we see care and love and responsibility in our communities. And while it's like admirable to hear you talk about, you know, the way that you cared for your mother, I mean... One of the struggles that I've had and I haven't spoken publicly about often is the struggle with my mother's mental health and the strain it's put on our relationship. The inability to kind of make sense of it with other people or to talk about Mm -hmm. it in fear of, you know, disclosing too much information, Mm -hmm. stigma, wanting to protect Mm -hmm. your family from really just the horror that it produces in your family. I mean, it's not... It's not pretty. It's not nice. It's
1: not cute. It's not something you can yeah. downbite. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, it's not easy to like come out and say when you have a family member that's struggling with a mental health issue, because it really it, it impacts the whole family system and the family system. It impacts how we move through the world and how we have relationships and so forth. So it can be a very horrible experience,
0: especially for children growing up in households or with families that are not well mentally, you know? Mm. How do you love someone who's struggling with mental health as it, it can oftentimes, it can exasperate yeah. itself and become very
1: abusive. When it comes to encountering those who are having mental health issues, it definitely requires a deep level of empathy and understanding that often people are behaving in a way that has nothing to do with you, the person who may be on the receiving end of the behavior, oftentimes it is them reacting to something we call inner stimuli, which is just like, no you know, stuff that is going on on the inside and how someone is maybe reacting to a situation as a result of trauma they've experienced. And when you're interacting with someone who is displaying behavior that is really hard to interact with, Because of their mental health, it's really best to just try to give them the space and understanding, but also set a boundary for yourself. So
0: one of the things I wanted to ask you was like, oftentimes we talk about mental health as something that just impacts the person struggling Mm -hmm. with it. And our society is so individualistic. We make all our problems personal rather than addressing systemic and political issues that play a role. And I know that you talk a little bit in your book about racism and the impact it has on Black women. Mm. Of course, class is a big part of that and of, of all discussions. But I wanted to know, what do you see is the role of, of the personal accountability to something, but then where you see mothers or women or men, even mm. fathers struggling with their mental health and really being
1: incapable of showing up for their community, let alone the people who love them. Intergenerational trauma, right? So intergenerational trauma is trauma that's passed down to us from the previous generation. And oftentimes, as we've seen in the previous community before us, the generation before us, a lot of the our family members or our friends and so forth, the collective Black community, don't really address what's going on. And also, sometimes we don't even have time to address what's going on or they didn't have time to address what's going on. I'll say that now because I feel like the current generation is definitely doing a better job. Or they're job in denial, you know? Yes. Or they're in denial. Yeah. Or in denial because it's, it's a hard truth to face when you realize that it's your work that you've got to do to heal yourself and address all these things. It's a larger conversation
0: about how this reflects American values. You know, what America, mm-hmm. what America has done to the psyche of black people, of the but pe- also yep. Yep. Um, of the people, of the people mm-hmm. at this time. I think mm-hmm. it's about our personal responsibility to you know healing and, and addressing our mental health while also recognizing mm-hmm. that there are systemic things
1: that affect yes. us. I mean, okay, yeah, you're definitely right. It's like there's the structural and then there's the individual, and if there's someone in your life that you love and they're going through something hard, it's like you also have to recognize that their mental health is their responsibility. I mean, there's a tiny bit of responsibility on you in the sense that you have to be able to build your own boundaries and also recognize when you have to step back. And when you've done as much as you can, because if this is someone you love and obviously you want them to get better and just be functioning better in society. But it's like, okay, society isn't necessarily giving them the support they need. Yeah. So it's almost like it's a losing fight. So many of us are struggling with this. You know? mm-hmm. and, so silence, many. and
0: silence, you it, know, it's an epidemic. It's really an, epi- it really an epidemic in our society, especially mm-hmm. as, as political issues become graver and graver mm-hmm. in terms yes. of socioeconomics and the global crisis and environment. I mean, these are all things that you can't just, impact, say, yeah, right? you can't just say they don't right? impact you. So people are right, impacted, right. you know? And I think Absolutely. It's, it's an unspoken conversation that our mental health is a big part right. of the, the the front line of some of these issues.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm, right, because so like with the population I work with, yeah, a lot of them are unhoused and experiencing homelessness. And if they can't even get their basic needs met, yeah. like, of course they're gonna, they're gonna have mental health issues. They're gonna, into substance issues. And I know a, a lot of people have resolves to dealing with the homelessness crisis and et cetera, but it's not an easy issue that is just like, Oh, just give people housing. It's like, okay, well, you know, a lot of these clients that I have, so some of them, we, we get them housing, but then it's like, they struggle with the housing because of all the other systemic structural issues and their mental health issues. As, you know, someone who's working with unhoused community and seeing
0: the most vulnerable in our society, struggling with mental health. What are some of the things that you've seen that have maybe given you some sort of hope or some sort of strategy to deal with and respond to this real need that we have in our society to address mental health?
1: I definitely see more people caring about this issue, issue of people who are homeless. And I definitely feel like what gives me hope is seeing states like California have laws where they are where they are trying to pass legislation to help get these people housed and that gives me hope that you know maybe other states will follow suit and they're trying it's it's because it's a systemic issue you know the housing crisis it's a systemic issue so seeing legislation or legislators try to figure out what can they do or even just the conversation about it keeping keeping it going is it gives me hope because it's it's not an easy fix and it's hard because it's oh, it's so complicated cuz housing is such a complicated thing i believe it starts with structural change in order for us to see you know the unhoused become housed to see less people who are homeless it's it's bigger than the individual and for someone like me who works in this system, trying to help those navigate the ability to get, you know, government housing or to get low income housing, there isn't a lot of systemic support sometimes. And, or it's, it's really hard to find uh, the resources to help people find housing that they can afford. And also the way we treat mental health in this country is medication, 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 when really we need to give people resources. I think Mm -hmm. a part of what
0: we're finding is that, you know, while I understand self-care for Black women, you know, is the title of your book. I also feel Mm -hmm. like, you know, collective care for Black women is so important. And I think that one of the things that we've been trying to stress in this conversation is you know, this false notion of a binary between the self and the collective and that,
1: mm-hmm. that
0: care should just imply both, you know, that when we, say, yeah. when we say care, we should, you know, words have become this thing that I think we have, you know, distilled to the point where we don't actually know what we're saying when we're saying the thing mm. we're saying. And so when we say care, we have to add these kind of adjectives like, oh, radical or, mm. you know, or descriptives like self or, you know, it's like, wait, what happened to it just being care? And understand and understanding that, like, that's what care is. That's what care should be. Is is the is the space between where we blur the line between self and collective. And I'm interested in what you said, which is like, I don't think so much. It's that people want to run away from the the issues of mental health, but I think mm-hmm. people are trying to also maintain their own mental health, right? And yeah, um, yeah. And find sustainable mm-hmm. ways to survive mm-hmm. a system that is mm-hmm. like really not set up structural things to support us. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, if you could envision the sort of society that was conducive to our mental health as a collective, what sort of society
1: would that look like? Oh my gosh, in my perfect world, please, everyone would have a base income. I mean, housing and healthcare would be free or affordable and we would have more money going towards education, so our teachers can be well-funded and the neighborhoods that are not as funded would have enough money. So every student can get a chance to succeed because like a lot of issues do start in the home. They start in childhood. They start in the neighborhood. They start in collective environments. So it would be like funding way more money towards things like childcare base income for everyone to have. If we could have free housing, that would be amazing or just guaranteed housing, however that would look. And basically, I would probably have a very socialist society where everyone feels supported. But, you know, that's not actually ever really going to happen because we live in the society we live in, but yeah, I feel like
0: Wait, I push um, back on that.
1: I push back on that everyone. girl. How are we going to get there if you don't believe we possible? You know what? You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. And I would also have like mental health be one of the things we care about. We care about our physical health, but we neglect the mental health. I would be very invested in more restorative care and more preventative care where that looks like people having more days off, people being able to take naps in the middle of the day of work, not needing your insurance be tied to a job. You know, kids can stay on their parents' insurance longer than age 26. I think one of the mm-hmm. things I look forward to is a world where children are protected and yes.
0: parents are supported and there are more mm-hmm. resources for parents and in and, and helping to care for their children. I think that It's just too much for one person or even two people to do. We have to rethink how we structure uh, care in this society Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for our children and those who take care of them.
1: Oh, absolutely. such a big part of where
0: mental health issues Mm -hmm. begin. I noticed in your book, you know, describing like the real things that we deal with as Black women, as Black people, the stress of racism, the stress of patriarchy, we kind of are hearing more and more as Black people about the things that we're up against. And we're we're not often encouraged to speak about the ways that we are thriving, manifesting in spite of those things. So for our mental health, what is the clinical reality of constantly hearing about the things that you have
1: up against you? So, you know, it's kind of like being introduced to your traumas over and over again. Yeah, that definitely has a greater impact when the mind and the body is constantly being met with something that disrupts its system, that disrupts the way it functions. It's going to de- develop defense mechanisms and unhealthy ways to approach certain things. It's going to start seeing almost everything as a threat and or you're you're not going to be able to tell the difference between a threat and a non-threat. And so you just treat everything like it's a threat. So you begin to move in a way that is not good for you and kind of begin to manifest the issues in your life. So, but I I definitely think it's more important for us to be interacting with things that show us as thriving and just in more peace and harmony. It's exactly why I don't watch a lot of Black trauma because I'm just like, I... How many times am I going to hear this police brutality story which I mean it's very important these stories are important but for me to constantly engage with this kind of content it is it's like my body is actually experiencing it and as my mind begins to constantly think like oh I'm experiencing this my mental health is going to deteriorate
0: yeah and I don't think it's just from other entities or other institutions like I feel like yeah, yeah, we- yeah. We do that to ourselves, you know? Oftentimes we find ourselves in organizing spaces where we focus on, oh, who's the most traumatized in the room? Who's the person that is mm. the most wounded in the room? Who's the person that has the most identities who are traumatized by society and most oppressed, right? And let's let's mm. hear them, let's focus on them. And what that does is it also, like, while we were trying to center the most vulnerable, we also are kind of, I think, in some ways, putting on a pedestal. Tra- yeah, the I was going to say tra- glorifying. Tra- yeah, mm-hmm. the most traumatized person. And so I think mm-hmm. we find ourselves also in moments where it's rewarded or if people feel affirmation in a kind of mm-hmm. being the most quote unquote traumatized person in the room.
1: You're right. It is definitely a thin line between validating someone's uh, traumatic experience and also perpetuating it and focusing on it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And like we aren't talking about who wants to be the most free And
0: I think that that's part of what I'm trying to understand is like, as we do this self-care work or as we do this mental health work, how are we also not creating a sort of basis of reward on trauma and still Mm -hmm. acknowledging it, still naming it, that it needs to be addressed, you know? And I'm wondering, what do we see from the people who are doing clinical psychology? What are the ways Mm -hmm. that we can sort of disrupt that? What are some Mm -hmm. strategic things we can do that maybe might be helpful for us moving
1: forward. In my line of work, when it comes to someone's trauma, we often only address it when the person has feel safe and is ready to look back at that trauma Mm -hmm. and uncover it. Because it's very important, you know, if you don't feel safe, you're not going to be able to fully unpack everything you're going through. Mm. and so a lot of times we with clients and in my experience we try to stay present and also move forward and it is like you're going back and forth sometimes because I feel like as black people it is important to be validated in your experiences and be validated in the racism and oppression that you feel but also you you need to be pushed forward um into the other direction and constantly meet something that reminds you that okay I don't have to stay here I can move forward I think we we're just in a very interesting time and I think we don't Mm -hmm. have these conversations often in in depth
0: you know how do we really really be real with each other about what are techniques Mm -hmm. and what are pathways through this you know because it is a real it is a real um issue we're facing and I think what you said about people feeling safe and ready
1: Yeah, you know, that's, you know, that's an individual, right, thing. It's like only you can know when you're really ready to address some things. Because also there's, uh, in regards to Black people, you know, it's just like there's a lot to unpack. I'll use myself as an example. You know, I didn't realize I had my own internalized racism. I mean, I feel like ultimately a lot of us have a lot of internalized racism and we have to unlearn racism. And so I I didn't even realize that I was experiencing discrimination when I worked at Cosmo until like almost a decade later, where I'm talking to my therapist and I'm finally able to tell her about the things that happened. And it's like, oh, that was what was going on because my mind had a trauma response and trauma responses are, you know, how your body, how your mind and body reacts to protecting you from something traumatic. So my trauma response to a lot of things that I experienced is just to kind of like shut down, forget about it and focus on myself and be like, oh, I need to work harder. I need to be perfect and to kind of ignore the things. And it took me taking the time to really let go of the internalized racism and also accept my own version of Blackness and also look at the things that happened in the past and, you know, realize that, okay, that was what happened. And then, then as I was writing this book and going through things with my publisher or not, I also had to remind myself like, okay, this is not Cosmo. Like this is not, this is not the past experience you're having. So it's hard because our, our minds will go back and forth. Mm. But, our, but our brain has neuroplasticity, which is like the ability to basically recreate different meanings to similar experiences that we've had in the past. So our brain has the capacity to change. So I I had to constantly remind myself like, okay, this is not Cosmo. You are not dealing with the same white editors you were dealing with almost 10 years ago. This, this, and so there was a lot of constantly constantly talking to myself and reminding myself. And
0: so. Yeah, I think in your book, you wrote that the mind is the epicenter of wellness. And I wanted to ask you, well, how then, does wellness look
1: for people who struggle daily with mm, mental health? You know, when I think about this, like people who are struggling with mental health issues and me, myself, them in that, you know, my mental health wellness looks different every day, week by week. And I think a lot of it has to do with personal acceptance of how my brain operates and how my body operates it's like getting comfortable with your mental health issues or getting comfortable with the idea that you even have mental health issues. And from there, uh, I, with me and, you know, some clients I've had, I've definitely realized that it's getting comfortable with sitting in the mess that you have and then getting ready and comfortable to clean it up. And for me, you know, the last year, I've definitely been struggling with like mild depression and burnout, And I had to accept that, you know, some weeks I'm going to be so focused. I am, I have all this energy and then I'm going to have some weeks where I just feel horrible. And as I began to unpack that, I would, I was internalizing a lot of like self-hate for that. I was very much so like, ugh, why do I, why do I like not want to do anything? Why am I so tired? I was basically villainizing rest and... I had to accept that you know what this is just me this is how I'm operating at this time and I've noticed that especially with people I work with like they they begin to blossom when they begin to kind of accept that these are the things they go through now it's not accepting it and ignoring it and like you know acting like oh I'm fine I don't need to deal with these issues it's accepting that okay you know sometimes I may experience really uh strong bouts of depression and I need to isolate. Okay. That's how I recover. Or or realizing, okay, you know what? These I, I see things or I hear things and I need to not be fearful of these things that I deal with. So I feel like it's a it's it's a journey. It's definitely a journey from a, definitely a journey through radical acceptance of how you operate. So
0: Yeah, thank you. I had a question about psychology and and social health and the way that we deal with people who struggle with mental health. And I wanted to ask you, what role do you believe conversations and speaking plays in our wellness practice around mental health? I know that therapy looks a specific way. In Western society and you know so you as having roots on the continent, I wonder mm-hmm. like are there other forms of therapy that you find to be more uh, effective with certain people or certain groups of people because I think you know some people are very intimidated by, by having conversation.
1: Yeah I definitely feel like with talking therapy it helps a person feel like they're not alone and that they're not alone in their experience. You're working with a professional and examining your thoughts, emotions, behavioral patterns. And it's all about connecting the influences of your past to the present. So that's psychodynamic therapy. And that's the traditional therapy that we know to treat like mental health issues like depression and anxiety. But then there's also things like EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which primarily is used to treat PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, can be used on people with all different forms of trauma to help reduce the vividness of like trauma memories and then there's like behavioral therapies which they're also considered psychotherapies but with a little bit of a twist and like dialectical behavioral therapy or dbt which is something is primarily used to treat people with borderline personality disorder or any emotional regulation disorder. It's used to help these like individuals with relational conflict. And it can help someone learn how to function in relationships because you're taught a lot of coping skills. And it's usually done in a group learning setting while someone is receiving individual therapy. And then there's group therapy, which can also be kind of like community therapy, where there's a clinician or who's treating a small group and allows people to learn from others and encourage one another. Therapy doesn't always have to look like you sitting down with a professional and talking to them. Sometimes it's maybe with a collective and gathering with other people, especially with like African communities. They definitely are, you know, don't tell people your business type of community. Like they don't Mm. really want you to talk to a stranger. So sometimes it's helpful if they are in a community and it's like the community is maybe learning about something together or working together towards something. Because sometimes some people need communities around them to kind of shift their thinking and to shift how they approach things. Okay, thank you. Well, the last question
0: I have for you is around... Sound. So, mm-hmm. you know, a big part of this conversation in this podcast is about the power of conversation, but also sound. And I wanted to ask you are there sounds that make you feel well or sounds that bring calm to you that you really um, lean on when you're in difficult situations? What's a sound that brings you comfort mm-hmm. and calm and peace of mind?
1: Oh, I love this question. Okay. I feel like there's a lot of sounds for me that work. I love sound baths, the ethereal, meditative sounds. I definitely love those because I, I practice yoga regularly, sounds of nature. And I'm connecting and listening to music in Yoruba, which is my family, which is uh, who I am. My family, were Yoruba. So, you know, connecting to those roots is always nice. Things like that. Nice. Thank you so much
0: for (laughs) that answer and your response to the questions. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Yes, thank you. So lovely speaking with you. I would like to take a second to address our listeners. Thank you for being here with me today and for listening. I believe listening is a radical act in the step of care, so please check in with yourself and listen to the sound of what's reverberating in your own heart.